Our scripture for today is found in uh, the book of Acts, the second chapter, very familiar passage of scripture, and it's verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the reading of his most precious word. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these words that capture the first church, the early church. What a great picture that is. We pray that we at Parker Ford and we in your body collectively, the body of Christ, would be able to pursue and live up to the example that we find, the witness that we find in that first century church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, as you know, DJ started a new sermon series uh, on the church. And his sermon last week provided a a great overview uh, to the sermon series. So if you weren't here last week, uh, I would encourage you to listen to that series uh, either on the website or on the PFC podcast. And DJ's description of the, the, it's a little small print, maybe you can see that, but again, it's also available on the website. But the, the overview of the series is that we'll be exploring many of the New Testament passages that define and shape our understanding of the church with an eye toward wrestling through the questions, what is the church? Who is the church? Why does the church exist? What is the purpose of the church? Much of what we often think of as church is more cultural than biblical. For instance, no one in the New Testament period would have ever said, I'm going to church, and they probably would scratch their heads at us when we say it. The church is not a place to go. It is a people gathered together around Christ. While it's impossible for us to reproduce the culture and events that shaped the first century church, we can and should constantly return to the scriptures as the guiding and shaping force behind how we seek to build up the church today. And in that description, I think the key phrase is return to the scriptures. I think that's really important. And we're going to be doing that today and all throughout this uh, series as well. Now, as you may or may not know, the Parker Ford Church is affiliated with the Church of the Brethren. And the Church of the Brethren has its roots in both the Anabaptist tradition and the Pietistic tradition. And both of these movements came out of the Protestant Reformation, and they could be referred to as restorationist movements. Restorationist movements. And what they were trying to restore was the early church the early church that we find in the book of Acts. Um, The early brethren believed that the mind of Christ was most clearly revealed in the New Testament. And if we're looking to see how the first century church functioned, well, that's best going to be found in the book of Acts and also in Paul's writings. They completely understood 
that a church is not a building. In fact, when their first houses of worship were built in the 1770s, beginning in the 1770s, they were not called churches. You know what they were called? Yeah, they were called meeting houses. And this is a picture of the Klein Meeting House, still stands today. It was built in 1843, and it's on the grounds of Peter Becker community over in Harleysville. It's a very plain building. Now, of course, the shutters are closed there, but there are no stained glass windows in the Klein Meeting House. They were not fancy. There's no steeple. In fact, there isn't even a pulpit inside. Uh, it's a, in a very real and deliberate way, they were built in contrast to the state-controlled large cathedrals that those movements, the Anabaptist and the Pietistic movements, were in part protesting. Now, I have a picture of another church that was built in 1843. Some of you may recognize that. This one is a little more progressive than the Klein Meeting House, even though they were built the same year. You see, we were a little closer to Philadelphia, and we had that influence of the big city. Uh, so the publisher of that postcard uh, calls it a church, but they also spell the word brethren wrong. I don't know if you see that. Brethren, yeah, brethren. That's T.R. Kaufman. He was the pastor in the early 1900s. And this, as I said, is a little more progressive. There aren't stained glass windows, but the windows in the first, uh, our first church, first Parker Ford Church, had little stained glass corners in the, in the corners of the windows. So uh, it was kind of a little bit of a compromise, I think. I'm not quite sure. The other thing that the uh, early brethren, the Anabaptists, really espoused and believed, which came out of the Protestant Reformation, was the priesthood of all believers. Everybody was equal. Between clergy and the laity, all were equal. There was equality there. And, uh, you know, that was important. It was very important. The picture of the early church that is painted for us in Acts 2 is really a wonderful and impressive thing. It is, I believe, the most accurate description that we have of what the church was and should be, is intended to be. And please notice that when we read that passage in Acts 2, there isn't any mention of stone or marble or stained glass. There's no mention of pipe organs or pews or podiums. And the same token, it doesn't mention praise bands, or stage lighting, or large screen projection either. Those things just aren't mentioned. Well, they didn't exist, a lot of them, for one thing, of course. But there uh, is a building that's mentioned in that passage in Acts 2. Did you catch it? There is a building, but it's the temple. It's the existing temple where the believers continued to meet because that was the social hub of their culture. They continued to meet in the temple. So the bottom line is that the Anabaptists, including the Church of the Brethren, returned to the scriptures. They went back to the scriptures and by doing so, understood that the church is not a building. And they made a conscious decision to name their building something else so that there wouldn't be that confusion. They understood that the church is the people. And the, uh, the definition uh, that DJ uh, gave us last week, based on those two Greek words that are up there on the screen, 
uh, really talks about the church as being a gathering of people who belong to the Lord. These early groups had an earnest and strong desire to use the scripture to guide them in their decision-making as well as to inform their, their way of living. And this can be seen really in the motto of the Church of the Brethren also. You know, continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply, and together. Continuing the work of Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Again, we're going back to the New Testament to find out what the mind of Christ is and how it affects us, how we should live. And then there's the together part at the end of that motto. And that's how we do it, gathered together. We do it together as a people who belong to God. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the relatively recent history of the church. But in three weeks, I'll be back. And I'll be back to talk about the history of Parker Ford Church, specifically our congregation. And we'll be looking at the, all the ways that PFC has attempted to be a uh, gathering of people who belong to the Lord, how we've attempted to embody that over the history of our congregation. Well, this week, our focus is on the church as a means to an end. And, and last week, DJ introduced you to this idea that the church is not an end, but the church is a means to an end. So what does that mean? Well, have you ever visited a church or perhaps attended a church that couldn't stop talking about itself? You may know what I'm referring to. You know, maybe it's the history of the congregation. That's all they could talk about or the family connections that are a part of that congregation. You know how my great-great-great-granddaddy Elias Crumpacker was, was one of the founding members of the congregation, and we've had a Crumpacker on the board ever since. That's a real name, by the way, Crumpacker. Yeah. Or they talk about how many millions the building cost, or the number of programs that they offer, or the number of missionaries that they support, and the list could, could go on and on and on, just like these people could go on and on and on, talking about their church. And after a while, you begin to think, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And does God have anything to do here? Or is it all being done for him, you know? Is God involved at all? Do they have anything to do with God? And, you know, we can laugh about that, and we can kind of poke fun at such churches. But if we're honest, I think that all churches struggle with this kind of thing. And I'm not quite sure what it is. It could be a desire to have an identity, maybe a desire to have a claim to fame of one kind or another. It's the temptation, though, to lay claim to the successes of the church, and to take credit for those successes. But the overarching message that is being communicated is that they believe that their church has arrived. Their church has arrived. In other words, they reached the pinnacle, the epitome of what it is to be a church. And what is further implied is that there is no room for any improvement or growth. They have achieved perfection. The end all, be all and there's no further they can go. And often, coupled with this attitude or even belief, is the looking down their noses at other parts 
of the body. And maybe you've experienced that when you've talked to these folks and you share some of the things that are going on in your church, perhaps. You see, they forget that there is only one church. There is only one body. The idea that the church could be the end simply cannot happen. First of all, you know, review the, this definition that DJ developed with us last week. The church is the gathering of the people who belong to the Lord. And as such, we do not, we do not bring glory to ourselves. The church exists to bring glory to God, and that is not just on Sundays, brothers and sisters. Not just on Sundays. And also, we need to focus on what the end really is. If we're a means to an end, well, what's the end? Uh, take a look at the, at the blurb for this Sunday's message. Sometimes as the church, we look to our buildings, our programs, or our accomplishments and are tempted to say, we've arrived. But that is faulty thinking. First, it isn't our building or program or accomplishment. They all belong to the Lord. He is the author, yes. And we must remember that he is also the finisher. We as the church will never arrive on our own. We are not an end, but a means in the kingdom of God. What are those means that God has given to equip his church, and what will that end be? Well, DJ alluded to the ultimate end last week, and we get a foretaste of it in, in this life, but its culmination is the kingdom of God. And as the church, we exist. Our purpose is to advance the kingdom of God. Now take a look at, at Luke 17. Once uh, on being asked by the Pharisees when the, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And keep in mind that uh, Jesus said that while he was standing there, right? Of course the kingdom of God was in their midst. Jesus was there. He was there with them. He embodies the kingdom. He is the king. And the kingdom of God was right there with them. But then Jesus left, didn't he? He, he left. So did the kingdom of God go with him? You know, after all, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And he also told us that we should pray, your kingdom come, future tense. But Jesus also admonished people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, at hand, here, now, it's at hand. And in a very real way, we get a foretaste of the kingdom of God in this life. As members of the body, the church, we are working for the kingdom. And yet, the kingdom has not been fully realized. But we are laborers, you see, for the kingdom. Make no mistake about it. Each and every one of us is our own high priest. Now, do you remember this image from last week? It's one of the stained glass panels out in the lobby. Uh, from the old meeting house. <laughs> and by the way, we did not pilfer these from the old church, as DJ said last week. Uh, 
it was all above board, okay? It was all arranged ahead of time, and we replaced them. We didn't leave holes in the windows down there. Now, of course, this represents the Ark of the Covenant and the, in the tabernacle or in the Jerusalem temple, and you have the mercy seat there on the top, as DJ described last week. It's where God and mankind, where God and the church meet, and the only person who could make atonement for all of the people was the high priest. And then on one day of the year, on the day of atonement. But now, but now, through Jesus' sacrifice and death on the cross, he has opened up that holy of holies, tearing down the veil that separated us from that access. And now we have full access. You see, we're our own high priest. And each of us who believe has access to God at any time, at any place. First Peter 2 tells us, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built up, built into a spiritual house, and our purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices. That, Christian friends, is the church. That's the church. And then continuing in 1 Peter, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen? You know, if that is not a picture or a glimpse of the kingdom of God, then I don't know what is. Without a doubt, we have the opportunity, the blessed opportunity, to experience the kingdom of God in the here and now. And guess what, folks? It's only going to get better. It's only going to get better. We have no idea how amazing it's going to be. We can't fathom it. As the church, we are a means to an end. And that end is the final culmination of the kingdom of God. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we have work to do. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, ripe for the planting, ready for the seeds to be planted. You are God's building. You know, how cool is that? to be invited to work alongside God, God's fellow workers. That's amazing, working where he's working, doing what he's doing. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I did a program on the history of Latchell's Bakery in Spring City for the Springford Area Historical Society, and some of you were there. Uh, my dad was our family's third-generation baker and owner of the, of the bakery. And putting that program together brought back a lot of uh, really happy memories. My brothers and I 
all worked as dad's baker's helper at one time or another. And we had the rare opportunity, not too many people get this opportunity, to report for duty and to work alongside our dad on a daily basis. And by doing so, we really found out who our dad was. You know, we really did. Um, the lessons that we learned by observing him, the lessons that we observed by working with him in the workplace were significant and long-lasting. And I could give you a lot of examples of those. But that experience really knit us more closely together as a family. You see, our working together as a family literally put bread on the table, right? Literally put bread on the table. And it's no different with the church. Working together, working together with our brothers and sisters in Christ is going to bring us more closely together. It's going to knit us more closely together. And as we work alongside our Heavenly Father, we're going to learn more about Him, learn more about His ways. And in doing so, we enable those ways to become second nature to us. Well, we have our assignment pretty well laid out for us. As DJ told us last week, our assigned activities include two things, the greatest commandments and the Great Commission. You remember what they are? The greatest commandment, Jesus told us so, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he gave us the second greatest one too, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, what he's really saying is, in the greatest commandments, love God with all you've got. With everything that you are, all your being, love God. And your neighbor is yourself. And then the commission, make disciples of anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody. So if we're a means... What are the means that we have at our disposal that we can use to grow the kingdom of God? Well, they're partially found in our, in our scripture for today. You know, this first part. Yeah, I think I have it highlighted there. <clears throat> Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know, that's really an amazing picture. Uh, it says here that they were devoted to those things. It meant they were serious about them. They really were serious. They were serious about the teachings of Christ as delivered by the apostles. They were serious about fellowship. And we learned last week that that's more than coffee and cake. It's being united by a common purpose and a common calling. There's a German word. It's pronounced Gemeinschaft. Gemeinschaft, it's difficult to capture in, in one English word. It's really kind of impossible to do. It, it's the idea of community, all right? The community working together, of commonality, having things in common, our beliefs, our purpose, having those in common. Also, the idea of the brethren, you know, the brothers and sisters who are a part of the body, being together as a family. 
and the idea of a caravan. In other words, we're on a journey. We're traveling together with the same end in mind, you know, that fulfillment of the kingdom of God. There's a Latin word, via tourists, which means people of the way. So we are a people of the way. We are traveling together, again, going together about the same purpose. Other ideas of Gemeinschaft, it's a close-knit family feeling within the church. There's mutual discipline that takes place. In other words, we hold each other accountable. The equality of clergy and laity, I mentioned that before, the priesthood of all believers. A sense of belonging to the larger church, the larger body of Christ. Also, it's inclusive rather than exclusive. So it's an amazing picture, really. It really is an amazing picture that we have captured for us in Acts 2. After fellowship in this passage, the early church, we find, was serious about observing the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, the other teachings of baptism and anointing. And they were serious about prayer. And I think that's one area that we need to improve upon. We need to get more serious as a, as a congregation, as a body, as a, as a church in the area of prayer. And the rest of the passage in Acts 2, 42 to 47, I believe it's gravy. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, when they saw a need, they met the need. Whenever there was work that needed to be done, they did it. If there was a purpose, they filled it. And that's what the body does. And please understand that we're talking about needs both inside and outside of the body. There's no indication that the early church only took care of their own. And we know that they took care of widows and orphans. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw this on Facebook, but some, this was posted actually uh, just recently, but it's from a blog post that's uh, about a year old or maybe two years old. So keep in mind when I say last week, it was a couple of years ago. Last week, a young Amish man named Stephen Yoder was killed in a mill accident here in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. Stephen left behind a wife named Mary and five children under the age of 13 and one on the way. I asked my Amish friend what would happen to the family. How will they financially make it since the Amish did not carry insurance? She answered, the church will take care of them. The church in an old, war, old world order Amish group is the entire community. We are the church. We will all pitch in and help her until her sons are grown and can financially support her. If everybody gives a little, she will have a lot. Today I stopped by uh, her house and she asked me what the weather was supposed to be like on Saturday. I said it was going to be cool but dry. And she said, good, because at least 10 teams of men are going to Mary's house to plow her fields, winterize her home and barn, get her a winter supply of coal to heat her home, and wood for her to cook with. The women are all going to cook and bake to help feed the men who are taking care of Mary's farm and bring food for Mary to have all winter long. I'm glad it will be nice for them. This is a community. This is the church. When there is a need, it is taken care of, not by a few, but by all. Lord, help us to be a better community and a better church. 
Let our eyes see the needs. Let our ears hear the cries. Let our hands pitch in and do the dirty work. Many hands do light work. They don't expect this widow with five children and another one coming soon to go out into the workforce to make a living and to have strangers raise her children. No, they rally around her and support her so she can stay home with her children exactly where she is supposed to be and how God has commanded the church to do. It's a great picture, isn't it? You know, I had a professor at Elizabethtown who said that he strongly believed that the only reason that unemployment insurance, social security, and other kinds of aid became necessary was because the church had failed. That was a sobering thought for me. You know, that was 40 years ago or so, and I still remember that as if he had just said it. You know, widows and orphans you know, those are two groups that were in the society of that day of the early church. They had no rights. They had no means of support and no voice. And so today, to widows and orphans, I would add foreigners, immigrants, the exploited, victims of abuse, those who are bullied, victims of sex trafficking, the unemployed, the homeless, those without health insurance. And that list could go on and on also. Well, so how do we do all of this? Oh, I forgot to put that up, sorry. So how do we do all of this? Well, the simple answer is, I don't know. I don't know. It's a big job. But to that I add, God knows. God absolutely knows. And he's given us all that we need to meet the needs, to take care of those who need taking care of. We have been equipped, both with gifts and with resources, to meet the needs that are all around us. So, do you know what your God-given gifts are? Because, uh, you know, that's how it gets accomplished. Everyone using the gifts that God has given to us. Because, you see, we have what it takes. It exists. We have it. We may not know it yet, but it's all there. It's all complete. It's part of God's perfect plan. How are you using the gifts that God has given to you to grow his kingdom? You know, I do know this. The gifts that God has given to us are not for the purpose of getting up on a Sunday, after, Sunday morning and making it here to church on a weekly basis. That's not what our gifts are all about. That is not the true test of a Christian. So where do you fit in? I would encourage you to not just be a bench warmer for Parker Ford Church. You are called to be actively involved in the life of the church, in the life of the body. And if we continue the image of the body, and each part, each member of the body has a function or purpose, what would you call the parts that don't contribute to the life of the body? that are only consumers, only takers. Well, the word parasite comes to mind. <laughs> you know, it's not a very flattering picture, is it? You know, as minister of caregiving, my role is to coordinate the, the work of the deacons. The deacons are organized into six teams, and our constitution provides for 
non-deacons to serve on the deacon teams. In other words, you don't have to be a deacon to serve on the deacon teams here at PFC. Every person in this room, in fact, every PFCer, should be connected to one or more of these deacon teams because there is something you can do, some way that you can get involved in, some way that you can contribute, some way that you can grow the kingdom of God by using the gifts that God has given you in the first place. Let me close with this thought. The concept of retirement is only mentioned once in the Bible. Do you know where that is? It's found in Luke 12. And it doesn't end well. I'll tell you that right from the beginning. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Some would say that's, would say that's retirement. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up for themselves but is not rich toward God. You see, you don't retire from being a Christian. You never retire. There's still an amazing pension plan, though. There really is. Well, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, I challenge you to discover them. There are a variety of ways to do so. And if you do know what your gifts are, then why, and, and if you're not using them, I have to ask the question, why not? Uh, and, and begin to make a plan. Begin to make a plan to use them. Become a living stone being built into a spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As Jesus said as part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this picture of the church. Help us, help us to live up to that picture, Father. Help us to embrace it. Help us to look to it as the example. And help us to fulfill the role as your body, as a group of people who belong to you. Father, we are so blessed. You give us so many blessings. Help us, Father, to be laborers for your kingdom. Help us to be useful and contributing members of your body. And help us, therefore, to further your kingdom here on this earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.